and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me live for back-to-back episodes, our go-to Star Wars expert, Paul. Paul, welcome back to the show. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Well, you're still on vacation down here, so uh, took advantage of that, I guess. I'm looking forward to this episode a lot more than the last one. Oh my goodness. Yeah, well, last week we reviewed The Phantom Menace, one of the greatest cinematic disappointments of our and uh, many others' lives. But now, fortunately, today, we are discussing something quite the opposite. Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. But just like last week, this episode is a little different. While we review the film, we will be watching the film. So while this is a regular episode that can be listened to just like all the others, it has the added bonus of syncing up with the movie. But once again, I gotta tell you, don't worry. Uh, it, this review and discussion is not a straight-up commentary track. Just think of it as like a hybrid episode. So you can pop in your copy, and we'll give you the instructions to sync it up. And if you're not in front of your TV or your computer screen, just enjoy the show. Alright, so we are watching Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, the special edition. Uh, we are watching the 2004 DVD release. I, I believe the Blu-ray has the same running time. So what we recommend that you do is go to the last frame of the Lucasfilms logo. It starts to disappear. Actually, go to the first frame in which the logo is completely gone. The first frame, the Lucasfilm logo goes straight to black. And I will count down 3, 2, 1 now, and when we say now, hit play. Alright, 3, 2, 1, now. Alright. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, Something interesting I read about that, Scott, is that initially um, George Lucas had a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, an incredible adventure took place. Ah. Um, he wanted this not to be science fiction, but more a space opera, fantasy, mythological. He wanted this to be somewhere completely unique and unknown to us so that he could do whatever he wanted within his created universe. Right now we're reading this, uh, this crawl. It's a much better opening crawl than the Phantom Menace one. There's uh, not anything about uh, taxation and trade routes, which is always nice. Yes. Uh, <laughs> actually, when I saw Phantom Menace, uh, the 3D release, this was actually the best part of it. I thought it was the uh, crawl at the beginning. Oh, really? In 3D, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be cool. So this is uh, obviously written and directed by George Lucas, produced by Gary Kurtz. The cinematography was done by Gilbert Taylor, edited by Paul Hirsch, Maria Lucas, and Richard Chu. It was produced by Lucasfilm and distributed by 20th Century Fox on May 25th, 1977. Now this made $775.4 million. That's uh, $461 million in the U.S. and $314 overseas. So it made seven hundred seventy-five point four million. How much do you think the budget was for this, Paul? Um, I have no clue. Only eleven million. Wow, pretty amazing. So now we get this amazing opening shot. Yes, of the uh, Tantive Four Rebel blockade runner, and it is uh, fleeing from a star destroyer. 
very, very famous shot. I remember my father telling me about seeing this in the theater for the first time and dragging many of his friends over and over again. Just, uh, just sold. Everybody was sold immediately on this first shot. Now, what was the name of the ship that we're looking at here that the Rebels are on? It is the Tantive Four. And as I uh, pull up my notes on that ship. Yeah, I, I, I believe that was an early design for the Millennium Falcon that they recycled. I was trying to find that in my notes, but I believe that was the case. Okay, so the Tantive Four is the consular ship of the Royal House of Alderaan. It's used by Princess Leia for Imperial Senate business. And it was captured by the Devastator. So this is the Devastator is the name of this Star Destroyer. Well, rightfully so, I guess. This pulsating engine of the Star Destroyer, it's actually a manipulated recording of a broken air conditioner. That's something the Ben Burtt's a genius when it comes to the sound design. And the uh, 3PO unit that we saw in the corridor with R2 and C3PO is U3PO. And it's actually uh, used as a spy by the Empire. Um, it was captured by the Empire and reprogrammed. It doesn't realize it's a spy. It also serves the House of Alderaan as C-3PO did, but it was a spy. Huh. Now these stormtroopers coming in, uh, they burst in and, and overtake the rebels. This actually took a few takes. Uh, the action on set ended very, very quickly. And Lucas used six different cameras to capture it. And what he did was just intercut between those takes to make it look like a, a longer or extended action scene. It's pretty funny. It's uh, famously uh, or infamously done where this uh, this model for the uh, blockade runner, this rebel blockade runner, uh, it had a tiny Playboy centerfold in the cockpit that could be seen, I think on like the Laserdisc version. I assume on this version... Lucas kind of cleaned some of that up. As we know in the special edition, Lucas made a, a lot of changes. I'm sure we'll point them out as we go along. And one other quick note about this uh, Star Destroyer, the Devastator. It is an Imperial class Star Destroyer. I'm not sure how many different classes of Star Destroyers there are, but this is an Imperial class Star Destroyer. Our first look at Leia as she gives a message to R2-D2 in secret. That opening crawl that we were reading, too, um, it was funny because Brian De Palma, he was complaining that nobody could understand this. And, and he helped, I guess, write a draft of this that was ended up used, you know, that ended up being used in the movie. He said it was just too difficult to understand. In fact, George Lucas showed this final cut of the film to a bunch of his friends, other famous directors, and Brian De Palma thought it was just a terrible, terrible movie. And supposedly, of all of his friends that he showed, only Steven Spielberg was the guy that said, you know what, no, this is a good movie, it's going to make a lot of money. And he was right. Now here we see Darth Vader for the first time. I believe the actor who portrayed Darth Vader is David Prowse? Yes. And uh, I'm not sure how tall he was, but the main reason they used him was of his uh, 
above average height so he could tower over everyone and hold that uh, captain up as he was strangling him. Played by David Prowse, but obviously voiced by James Earl Jones. And though he wasn't credited yet at this point in the trilogy, I'm sure they uh, we'll see if they added it if they added in his uh, credit at the end. But uh, at this time in the theaters, uh, he was uncredited for his voice role. In fact, it was reported that he requested not to be credited, saying that he he didn't really do enough to deserve a credit, which is kind of a uh, an odd thing to think. You know, nowadays where you know everyone wants a credit for everything craft services gets a credit <laughs> yeah i'm just looking over my notes here um in the second draft of star wars i think at the time it was called the star wars there was no princess leia instead there was a character named deke star killer who was a 25 year old jedi knight and he was on the uh blockade runner and taken prisoner by vader Hmm. Yeah, he, he Lucas wanted to put a female character in the film. It was something that was lacking. I believe even, uh, you know, Luke was going to be female, and uh, he made this character of Leia a very strong uh, female protagonist. And there's Leia with her infamous uh, <laughs> buns on the side of her head. That, oh, yeah. That hairstyle has been mimicked many times since. <laughs> Couple cinnamon buns. Now, we think of Darth Vader as being all through this movie, but do you know how, how many minutes of film he actually has? I do not. If I had to guess, I'd say maybe 20? Only 12. Okay. 12 minutes of screen time. It's pretty amazing. It's almost like football when you, when you calculate how, how many minutes of play there actually are compared to all the downtime. Now, when you look at Vader's eyes, do you notice there's kind of a reddish tint to mm. to his eyes yeah like a translucent dark red yeah i think they did away with that in the uh empire strikes back and return of the jedi uh, they probably chose that material something that the actor could see through well that's always good for acting to be able to see so here we are on tatooine now as the pod containing c-3po and r2d2 crash lands and they're off on their own as uh, we mentioned uh, in last week's episode, Tatooine is actually named after a city or a town of Tatooine in Tunisia. Lucas liked it so much that he decided to name this uh, desolate planet after it. And I believe Tatooine is Berber for eyes? Something that has to do with the eyes? Uh, no symbolism here, but just uh, something I came across in my research. Beautifully done, and it's so nice to see real sets. It really makes a difference. You know, there's our actual sun. You don't have to play around with layers and lighting. This is a, a, a sandy landscape. These are real characters on them. No, no green screen, no CGI, at least at this point in our viewing. And here we get to see that the droids have, you know, personality, a bit of a sense of humor somewhat, but not over the top, like, uh, in the prequels, we got used to like the slapstick comedy. Oh my goodness! Just just subtle humor <laughs> that yes. keeps you entertained. Now about the droids, this was 
and very, very, well, this whole movie, very heavily influenced by The Hidden Fortress. This, uh, this was an Akira Kurosawa film uh, from 1958. Uh, very, um, it released in 1962 in the States, but in Japan in, in 1958. Very, very influential on George Lucas. Just a, a great film. And uh, it, it's, it's told, the story is kind of told through the eyes of, of, of two lowly men. And Lucas liked that idea that, that these two unlikely heroes, these two lowly characters, everything will be shown through their eyes. All of this action kind of through their perspective. And he liked that idea. And that's really what heavily influenced these two characters here and their involvement in the overall story. If you look behind C-3PO in this scene, you see some bones on the horizon there in the sand. And that is the skeleton of a Krite dragon which is native to Tatooine. That's actually the uh, sound that Obi-Wan Kenobi made later in the film when he scares off the sand people. That was a Krite dragon scream that he uses to scare them away from Luke. Now, one thing about that skeleton, too, that I found is that they actually left that when they were done filming. They left the, the Tunisian desert. And when they went back in 2002 to film some scenes of Star Wars Episode Two. That skeleton was still there. Wow. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't been, like, chopped up and taken by Star Wars fans <laughs> as souvenirs. I know. Now, it's never really referred to by name, which is kind of interesting. We all know Tatooine so much, but they don't ever really say the name Tatooine. It doesn't appear on the scroll at the beginning of the movie. Uh, C-3PO says he doesn't know what planet they're on. Uh... Luke responds to um, C-3PO by saying, if there's a bright spot to the universe, you're on the planet that it's farthest from. It's pretty funny. It does, uh, Empire Strikes Back is our first mention of the planet's name. Okay, I never realized that. Yeah. Here we see uh, these little creatures. Jawas. The bright eyes. Yep, the name of the one that shot R2 is Dathcha. <laughs> so they actually went back and gave these characters names. Yep. Wow. And when he cries Utani after he shoots R2, that means come here. Okay. <laughs> and now they're carrying R2 to their sand crawler. Uh, sand crawlers were originally mining vehicles. They are 36 meters long, 17 meters tall, and no two are alike. And this was big, this this actual design of this thing. They uh, reportedly, when it was on set, it almost triggered a war. Uh, as uh, neighboring countries thought that this might have been a um, some sort of military vehicle that was parked along the border. But as we were talking about last week with Phantom Menace, with the CGI, everything kind of looks clean. It looks so much better to have everything gritty and used and dirty. I mean, we see R2-D2 here being uh, uh, handled by the Jawas, uh, not so gently. And he has all kinds of dirt on him. Is You know, we saw that he was traversing this desert landscape. And there they affixed a restraining bolt on R2-D2 so he can't run away. And then they sucked him up with their magnetic suction tube. Just a quote about uh, what I was saying here with this, uh, the dirt and everything that we see in the, the sets and the characters. Uh, Lucas called this his used future backdrop. You know, everything looks used. This was a stark contrast from 
sci-fi of the 50s and the 60s. You know, you think of the Jetsons, everything is sleek and clean. This was very, very different from anything anybody had ever seen up to that point. Lucas said, Star Wars has no points of reference to Earth, time, or space with which we are familiar, and is not about the future, but some galactic past or some extra-temporal present. It is a decidedly inhabited and used place where the hardware is taken for granted. You know, and that's that's a more accurate depiction of technology, I would say. Uh, just a minute ago when R2 woke up and he started looking around, if you pause and go frame by frame, you can actually see through his biggest lens and perhaps catch a glimpse of Kenny Baker inside oh, R2. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, here we go. Here's some CGI if you're watching on the DVD. Yeah, now we see uh, a stormtrooper riding on a dewback. Uh, doesn't really seem like a great mode of transportation, but no. might be better than walking. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, I was thinking, now, those dewbacks in the background that we're seeing now, those were original. Yeah. But the ones up close that we just saw were added for the special edition. But when the stormtrooper finds this metal ring in the sand and it's like, look, sir, droids. I was like, you couldn't tell by the tracks <laughs> in the sand. I mean, you know, C-3PO's tracks have treads on them that look like a droid. And then R2 obviously is this trail from his tires. Yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, you're really uh, not a good tracker. <laughs> <laughs> and these aren't one of a kind droids as much as Phantom Menace would have you believe Anakin came up with this C-3PO character, but, you know, these are these are not tracks that would be unfamiliar to them. And the Jawas, they are junk collectors. They travel through the desert in their sand crawlers and pick up anything of value and try to sell it, and that's what's going on here. They're gonna, they've arrived at the Lars Moisture Farm, and they're gonna try to sell some droids to Owen Lars. Gotta make a living. Now, this Jawa language that they're speaking, it was actually based on the Zulu language. And the, the recordings that you hear are a mixture of studio recordings. And uh, they also did recordings in places like can canyons and every, you know, uh, sports events. No, not just canyons, I guess. But like, you know how like that sound that you get like at a sports arena almost? It's kind of like that. Mm -hmm. They spliced all that together. And here we get to see our hero, Luke Skywalker. Originally Luke Starkiller, correct? Yes, yes. There was a lot of changes made from the uh, original draft of Lucas's notes to Mark Hamill's character that we're so well familiar with. We see his aunt, Baru, who we find out is not really quite his aunt. More like his, what, stepfather's... Brother's wife? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't uh, stopped and really <laughs> tried to figure that out. Luke was originally going to be Luke Starkiller. And uh, that was actually his name all the way until this point where they were filming in Tunisia. And uh, Lucas kind of had second thoughts and, and changed it to Skywalker. And it really didn't matter because Luke's name hadn't been used in these early scenes already. So, um... I guess uh, in The Force Unleashed, they, they actually reused the name Starkiller, finally. Yes, there's a base named Starkiller Base, isn't there? <coughs> Excuse me, yes. 
Uh, we will see that in uh, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, the Star Killer base. Now, something you may not know about this scene coming up, Scott, when uh, originally they picked the R4 or R5 unit, R5-D4, um, that droid purposely blew its motivator to prevent splitting up R2 and C-3PO. <laughs> yes. It, it realized that they were together, and so it in, in, intentionally did that so that they could have R2 as well yes and here we go here he is blowing his lid and that's apocryphal come on <laughs> i i've heard that and i've heard all kinds of fan things or, you know stories about him and everything it's like give me a break it's just a, a malfunctioning droid and just like everything else in this trilogy it's in the other trilogy it's it's all serendipity it all just happened to work out now, for you, uh, those of you who may be wondering where I'm getting a lot of my facts like that from, it's from the uh, Star Wars CCG uh, collectible card game um, that Decipher put out in the, uh, I don't know if it was as early as the late 90s, but definitely the early 2000s. And uh, there were hundreds of cards that covered all three original episodes as well as some for uh, Phantom Menace as well. I like just now when uh, C-3PO was saying, thank the maker. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, we know who your maker was. I wouldn't be thanking him. And uh, Luke there was playing with a little model Skyhopper. Yeah. And uh, you can actually see his full-sized one in the background there. He used to fly that around Tatooine, maneuvering through um, the canyons and uh, honing his pilot skills. The equivalent of Dale Earnhardt Jr. going home and playing with Hot Wheels, even <laughs> though he has a, an array of cars he can use in real life. But you could, I remember when the action figures came out, uh, after 1997, these movies started to hit theaters, the uh, digitally remastered and special editions, and they really hit the toy market hard. And like everything came out in toy form. Even now, I mean, it's still rolling out. It never stopped since then. And uh, you could buy that, uh, what is that called, a Skyhopper? Yes. Yeah, a T-15 Skyhopper or something like that. And I remember you could buy that. And I remember, you know, as a middle schooler looking at these toys and I'm like, that was in the movie? Like, where was that? Yes, the Incom T-16 oh, Skyhopper. One off. <laughs> but we never actually see him use it, but it's, it's there. And uh, here we go. Here's the message. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. In the game Rogue Squadron for the Nintendo 64, there is a bonus level where you can fly the Skyhopper through uh, one of the canyons of Tatooine. And at the end, there's a, a needle in, in the rock formation that you have to fly through. Oh, and that's uh, some legendary thing that Luke actually did, right? Yes. Along with uh, blowing up Womp Rats. <laughs> uh, what a sociopath. Now, at the time that Mark Hamill was going to be casted for this movie, he was under contract to be in Eight is Enough. That was a, you know, a series that was airing around that time. And uh, he tried to get out of his contract uh, between shooting schedules and, and filming locations, though. There was really no way he could do that. And he filmed the pilot for the TV series. And uh, after that, he was involved in that car accident that damaged his face. And uh, it resulted in the producers deciding him to... You know, deciding to let him go 
for the series, and he was finally uh, <laughs> able to be Luke Skywalker, fortunately enough. Yeah, I think that worked out for him. A little bit, yeah. Of course, we know Mark Hamill will be reprising his role as uh, Luke Skywalker in Episode Seven. It's still crazy for me to think about uh, Mark Hamill as a voice actor, too, and especially being the voice of the Joker in many of the cartoons and video games. It's yeah, just, yeah. like, hard to picture. But you can find on YouTube videos of him voicing that, and he really gets into the character. Oh, very much so. Yeah, you kind of think of, oh, well, he just, you know, had this great movie career very early and then kind of disappeared. But no, he's had a great career ever since. But like you said, voice acting... That great Batman, the animated series. Uh, if you're more of a Marvel fan like myself, you also know him as the Hobgoblin from the uh, Spider-Man TV series. And just a host of many other cartoons. V prolific voice actor, really. Very good at his job. He was also in, what, Corvette Summer? Was that between these two movies? The Between this and uh, Empire Strikes Back? I, I can't remember. Yeah, I'm not sure. Here we see blue milk. Now you see that the painting on the ceiling yes. of uh, Owen and uh, Baru's little cottage there. Mm -hmm. It's been said, "Oh, that's a that's a Darth Maul painting," <laughs> but uh, if you look at it very clearly, it is not. This uh, these color, not the cutlery, but the uh, the glasses that they're using and the plates and everything. A lot of that is Tupperware that was just used. Yeah, it seemed like that just. <laughs> That Plastic. 70s style, very simple. Mm -hmm. The uh, Luke's Aunt Baru there, I believe her name was Shalay Fraser? I believe that's who played uh, her. And her lines were actually dubbed for this movie. I kind of could tell that, you know, when you hear her talking. Just something a little <laughs> off. <laughs> Now, do you remember seeing this in the theater for the first time, Paul? Yes, I did see this when it was released uh, as a special edition. Um, I also got to see it on the big screen at school um, during standardized testing. I was in one of the grades that didn't have to go through that. <laughs> so the principal was awesome, and he uh, had everyone else go to the auditorium and showed all three of the original movies on the big screen. Oh, wow, you had a big screen, like a theater-sized screen at yeah, school? Yeah, they projected it. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's awesome. We had nothing like that. We just had TVs on carts, like everybody else, probably. Now, actually, A New Hope was not the first of the Star Wars saga that I saw Empire Strikes Back was. And I believe I finally got to see A New Hope and Return of the Jedi um, in, like, one weekend when USA Network had like all three movies back to back to back. Oh yeah, back when that was a big deal for a TV channel to get movies like this. Yes, it was. Here we see the two sons of Tatooine. Tattoo 1 and Tattoo 2, I believe they're called. <laughs> of course. Pretty uh, nifty shot. I'm not sure how the uh, the planet would necessarily revolve around two sons like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I remember in 1997 when these were coming to the big screen, my family had HBO in the 80s, so we kind of like had VHS tapes of, of the movies when they finally were on. So I had seen them that way. I, I, 
I couldn't even tell you the first time I had seen this movie. I don't even remember. Just something that had always been on occasionally at my house. But getting to see it on the big screen was just a whole other story. Did you see all of the uh, special edition releases? I missed Return of the Jedi in the theaters. But the other two I did. And see, uh, Luke had taken R2's restraining bolt off when he was cleaning him and trying to get that message to play fully from Leia. And that's why R2 was able to run away. Oh, okay. And that was what was affixed to him by the Jawas earlier. Yes. That was like making him spark and stuff. We see one on C-3PO's chest there. Oh, okay. Yep. That's something I never noticed before. Very interesting. Now that droid that just went by with the dome that's lit up, that is 2X3KPR. It's a maintenance and diagnostics droid. <laughs> I remember just early viewings of this. I never got the sense that they were underground, but you really get the idea there where he's like, you know, yelling out to Luke up. You know, they're kind of down in these little holes in the sand. It would make sense to live like that if uh, they were in such extreme heat in uh, in an arid climate. You'd want to go down below where it would be cooler. We got Luke's land speeder. Did you have this toy? I did not. No, I, that's one of the ones that I had. One of the few vehicles. And uh, we get the uh, the sand people, the Tuscan Raiders now. And now they're they're mounting their uh, woolly mammoth like characters called Banthas. Luke's land speeder is an X thirty four. X thirty four. Yep. So I guess there's different models. Top speed, 250 kilometers an hour. And the other land speeder that's owned by the Lars, the one that was uh, C-3PO was hiding behind earlier, is a Sorrow Sub V-35 land speeder. Hmm. That Bantha that we just saw, the our first glimpse of a Bantha, that was actually a poor Asian elephant that they affixed with the costume. And the thing was not used to... Having that heat, in fact, here we see some more Banthas here. And uh, it, it kept trying to, you know, move the costume off of it. It was like shaking it off. And uh, now Luke is getting attacked. And why exactly are they attacking Luke? Um, I don't know if it's a territorial thing. Um, I don't know too much about the Sand People and their culture, but... They've always been, you know, something to fear in the desert and and avoid when possible. When Luke was just attacked by the Tuscan Raider, and the the Raider, played by Peter Diamond, he uh, waves his uh, arms in the air up and down, holding his weapon over his head. And uh, it was actually him thrusting the weapon up once, and they just recycled the footage. They replayed it back and forth to make wow. him, like, <laughs> move it up and down. An early uh, instance of Lucas kind of playing around with the uh, editing. Seems like wouldn't be a hard thing to ask the actor to keep <laughs> lifting that up and I'm down. I'm sure that was something uh, thought of well when they were in London at that point. And here is Obi-Wan Kenobi. He just uh, did that Krite Dragon call, which was changed. The sound of that was changed in the latest um, 
the latest edition, the Blu-rays that Lucas released. Okay. Um, as well as in this scene, uh, R2 is covered up by some CG rocks. Yes. That To make it look like he's hiding more than he originally was in the original theatrical release. I remember reading the fan outrage, especially of that, where he's hiding behind rocks. And there's no way that he could get in there. <laughs> yeah. Just really strange. Like we talked about last week, Lucas just <clears throat> has to keep adding and adding to these things. And if you're a painter and you keep adding more and more to your painting, you're going to ruin it. And we see the way that Obi-Wan is dressed here. Um, obviously, in making the prequels, Lucas made the statement that this is the official Jedi garb of brown robes and um, cream-colored robes instead of just the ideal way to dress when you're in that kind of climate. Hmm. Yeah, we, we'd see that carry into the prequels and the Jedi Council, and they're all wearing... Similar garb, similar colors. Fortunately enough, it he landed on Tatooine. <laughs> now, originally, Lucas wanted full a full cast of unknowns. Uh, I think maybe Harrison Ford had been in what American Graffiti up to that point. Not some, not a household name anyway. And uh, he was advised, no, you got to get you got to get somebody famous. You got to get one veteran actor. Especially in this Obi-Wan Kenobi role. And uh, fortunately, he settled upon <laughs> Alec Guinness, who uh, I guess wasn't necessarily that enthused at the time, or at least according to some reports. Yeah, in fact, it was Francis Ford Coppola who suggested that he go with uh, somebody like that. Um, was he in a uh, Bridge Over River Kwai? Yes. Okay, I yes. have that on my DVR. I haven't watched yet, but I want to check it out. He was also in Last Holiday and not the Queen Latifah version. <laughs> but, you know, as much as you hear about Alec Guinness, you know, thinking, yo, oh, this is ridiculous and all this stuff, he was actually one of the few cast members that believed that this would be successful and negotiated a deal for 2% of the one-fifth gross royalties paid to George Lucas, which, of course, made him considerably wealthy. <laughs> Another uh, actor that they were considering for Obi-Wan was uh, Peter Cushing, who, of course, we know as Grand Moff Tarkin. And here uh, we're getting to learn more about the Star Wars universe, the term Jedi Knight and... Obi-Wan is talking about knowing Luke's father and fighting with him. You see that burnt piece on the right side of his robe there? Mm -hmm. We actually see that robe supposedly get burnt in uh, Revenge of the Sith. Okay. We actually see that spot. And yeah. I, I have, to, that's what I've read. I got to go back and see that now. Mm -hmm. And we get now our first look at uh, Luke's father's lightsaber. The weapon of the Jedi Knight. And uh, a little bit of a frame jump there as uh, Luke ignites it. You know, as the technology was kind of limited, but uh, this was just uh, amazing, this weapon. Yeah, I. From the moment I saw Star Wars, I wanted a lightsaber. <laughs> oh, everybody did. I used to dream about running around with one, cutting things up. <laughs> Not people. Just, no, 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 no. Just trees yeah. and stuff. Please clarify. 
we learn, of course, later on through the expanded universe material about how they're, you know, the Jedi's are responsible for making their own lightsaber. This crystal's at the core, and Luke eventually does make a lightsaber, as as, as is the custom of the the Jedi Knights. Yes, it's the color of the crystal that determines the color of the blade. Usually the Jedi wield blue or green lightsabers, although there are yellow, there are purple, and even black and silver um, in some of the video games. And the Sith are well known for their red-bladed lightsabers. This uh, the lightsaber sound effect... It's the hum of an idling 35mm movie projector and the feedback generated by passing a stripped microphone cable past a television. Ben Burt was very inventive with these sounds, and it's something we've never heard before. It's amazing what some of those sound people do and how they come up with different things. Yes. So here we see Obi-Wan seeing Leia's projection for the first time. And uh, I believe here, I didn't realize this before, but here she also mentions the Clone Wars, or the Clone War, to uh, to Obi-Wan, who also mentions it to Luke. And, of course, set the stage for, you know, some interesting CGI in the future. Yes. Something <laughs> that would have been best left to our imaginations. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just... I mean, even to this point of the movie, it's just so much better, so much more real, the dialogue and everything. Um, I remember having a conversation with a coworker complaining about the prequels and talking about bad acting, and he's like, well, the originals had bad acting too. I'm sorry, I know I'm a Star Wars fan, but I watch these and try to take off the rose-colored glasses, and I think <laughs> they have excellent acting. I don't see any any problems. Yes. I, not everybody in these movies faded into obscurity. Uh, of course, Harrison Ford became one of the greatest actors of his generation. Alec Guinness had already been in that role, one of the greatest actors of his generation. You know, it's uh, these, these were legitimate actors. And there, um, Luke mentioned Anchorhead. That's a place, a town that he liked to frequent uh, hang out with his buddies there at the Tashi station and uh, I'm not sure if it's a deleted scene or what um, if we ever saw anything more than stills of it or even just um, artwork but originally Luke was going to be at the Tashi station and with a set of high-powered binoculars he was watching the space battle that took place um, at the very beginning of the movie um, he was able to see that with his own eyes. Yeah, I believe something was filmed with his friends. There was Cammy and somebody else. And uh, I don't know if they were ever added as deleted scenes or what, but uh, not used in the movie, obviously. And uh, the Star Wars radio drama that uh, aired on NPR in, I think, the late 70s, early 80s, featured those scenes. Luke hanging out with his friends and you know, hearing about joining the Empire, you know. Mm -hmm. And here's our first scene with uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. Yes, the, the great Peter Cushing. He is in charge of the Death Star. It, uh, 
just uh, this this famous scene where it's like, why would you backtalk Darth Vader? <laughs> Apparently, he didn't hear the stories that uh, Vader could choke you with his mind. <laughs> Your sad devotion to that ancient religion. <laughs> <laughs> and who, do, who is this character that gets uh, force choked? Do you do you remember? Uh, give me a second. Oh come on, you got to <laughs> know this one. He just finds his lack of faith disturbing, that's all. Admiral Mati. He's, oh, Mati, okay. He's a senior Navy commander of the Death Star. They have a Navy? Yes, uh, they, they are called naval, uh, naval soldiers, some of them. We'll see the gunners later. They have black, um, black uniforms and these helmets that kind of slope way back. Yeah, yeah. And they're part of the Imperial Navy. Okay. It's not Navy that we think of, like water Navy, <laughs> you know. It's a fleet. It's a command of a fleet, I guess. Right. Sand people always ride single file to hide their tracks. And just, just the sets that were built, all the... I mean, this is $11 million, and even for that time, they, I mean, you can see a lot went into this. I wonder what that translates to today's inflation rate. It's considerably <laughs> more, obviously. But uh, such a, a small budget for what, you know, the returns were. You could see why 20th Century Fox, uh, they were hesitant at first, but uh, so happy with the results. And... Uh, the two other sequels were very well deserved. In fact, it was the first film to make over $300 million. I know it was the, the leading moneymaker for a long time yes. until I think Titanic finally overtook it. Uh, probably I so. I believe yeah. that was the first one. Adjusted for inflation, yeah. Within three weeks of this film coming out, 20th, century's, 20th Century Fox stock price doubled to a record high. Wow. Yeah, pretty amazing. I don't know if a movie could do that nowadays. If I could uh, hop in my time machine and uh, buy some stocks. <laughs> yeah, but you'd have to sell because, uh, you know, it is Fox. <laughs> and uh, this is our first view of TIE Fighters, possibly? And the Death Star, I believe, from an out outside view. The uh, Death Star, such amazing thing. I don't think we've ever seen that in films, where uh, a base the size of a of a moon. Of course, that's no moon. That's a space station. <laughs> the um, I guess in the Italian version of this movie that came out, the uh, the Death Star is called La Morte Nera, which is the Black Death. This uh, droid here that was used to interrogate Princess Leia is ITO. It uses probes and needles to dispense truth drugs and perform quote unquote surgery. <laughs> yeah, it did have some sort of like syringe mm -hmm. on one of its uh, arms there. Hmm. You also notice the between scenes, those wipes that were done. Kind of like a. Uh, Almost like a Windows Movie Maker <laughs> transition between scenes. But uh, Lucas uses them 
And, and I believe uh, straight through into the prequels. And I assume J.J. Abrams will also be utilizing them to keep consistent, as it, it seems like that's something he's focusing on doing. He's not making it his own. I guess there won't be any lens flares like we saw in Star Trek. Uh, he might sneak one in as a nod. <laughs> and this is our first distance scene of Mos Eisley. Do you know, Scott, um, what town or city that actually was? I don't know. Just curious. Oh, some CGI scenes here. Yes, lots of blending between original and new stuff now. We see here this little robot that lifts. He was like lifting a pole or something. Mm -hmm. They actually released a action figure of that character. I forget what his name is, but uh, I bought it. And we see another one of those droids here. Um, we just saw some starships uh, taking off. And the one on the left as the they were coming into Moss Eisley is, I believe it's called the Outrider. It's Dash Rendar's um, spacecraft. And he's best known for the book, being in the book Shadow of the Empire, which happens between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. He's a bounty hunter. But he's, he's kind of a good guy, right? I remember him from the... Uh, he's from the Nintendo 64 game, right? Yeah. Either a bounty hunter or a smuggler. But yeah, he, he's a good guy in the book. Kind of like an anti-hero type character. Kind of like Han Solo. Yeah. Of course, you don't really need him. You already have a Han Solo. It is Star Wars. But he was frozen in carbonite. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Shadow yeah. of the Empire. So somebody so. had to take that role. Mm -hmm. I see. Now, looking back now, I mean, this is almost 20 years after these CGI characters were added. Do you think they hold up? I, I, I realize why George added them. He wanted to make Moss Eisley look more large and bustling with activity than he could afford or could pull off with all uh, real practical effects. But... Uh, I don't really view them as necessary. Yeah. Some things look not bad. Some things look really obvious, though. And here we are in the cantina. This is a iconic scene. All of these different characters. and I, I could go on and on talking about each character, oh what goodness. their race is and everything. It would take hours. There was actually a book, Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina, and several of the prominent characters that you see in this scene, um, you can read their background stories. Uh, what happened just before they were in the cantina, what happened right after. It's a pretty good read. Of course, it's all legends now. But... Yeah, yeah. I guess once they finished principal photography, they, they went back and tried to film more cantina scene stuff to give it more diversity and add more aliens to the scene. And uh, the reshoot set, I guess, was very small. So there are some close-up scenes where Luke and uh, and everybody enters, and you can kind of see the same window over and over in the background. That thing you saw on the wall flashing blue, that is actually a droid detector. That's how the uh, bartender knew there, there were droids coming in oh, okay. and said, get them out of here. Now there's a, there's a, a devil-looking character 
I forget what they're called. Uh, Devonian, I believe. Okay, yeah. And that, that was actually a devil mask created by Rick Baker for a Halloween show. <laughs> they use that in here. Yes. Again, lots of characters we could... We could do a whole, a whole episode about the characters we see at the Moss Eisley Cantina. There's the Hammerhead. Here's Panda Baba and Dr. Evazan. Yes, and uh, I believe the Panda Baba action figure, I don't know about the ones when we were younger, but I think maybe the ones from the, the 70s and 80s had the removable arms. Did you ever have one with removable arms? I did not. Yeah, I think it was the old one. And it was funny, you could... Uh, replay kids could replay <laughs> this scene over and over again where panda baba loses his arms um i misspoke earlier it's actually devaronian that is what the devil like character looks like i see or is named that's a species or his name that's the species the name of that particular one was labria wow so they had, they went back and actually named these characters as well yep wow that's amazing the twins we saw at the bar are the Tonica sisters. If you ever you ever see Robot Chicken where they did their own Star Wars special? Yeah. And there was a scene with uh, Ponda Baba and it was basically showing how it was uh, a misunderstanding and Dr. Evazan was kind of the, you know, uh, the, the instigator of this whole event and he was just trying to mind his own business and telling his friend to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I believe he was an architect and he lost both of his arms and lost his job. Now here's our first look at Han Solo and Chewbacca. Played by Harrison Ford and of course Peter Mayhew. Peter Mayhew is actually that tall. How tall is he? Uh, very tall. <laughs> I don't know if I have his height here, but uh, but a very tall man. And he's playing Chewbacca again in The Force Awakens. Yes. The species of the band in the cantina is Bith, B-I-T-H, and it's led by Figrin Dan. Yes. We got a, another view of them, I believe, in the uh, Star Wars Holiday Special, <laughs> where they play a, a song and uh, B. Arthur sings. We we watched that for this podcast as well. Regrettably. Yes. Yeah, Peter Mayhew was seven foot two inches. Wow. Very tall man. And he, he was working at a hospital. He was an orderly prior to being cast in the movie. Hmm. And... Uh, it was reported that he won his role 10 seconds after meeting George Lucas for the first time. And uh, all that was really required for his audition was to stand. Now, did you find anywhere in your research about the character of Chewbacca? I, I kind of remember him supposed to be kind of like the loyal dog. Like it was copied after George Lucas's dog. Yeah, George Lucas uh, modeled it after his dog, Indiana. Is his dog's name. Kind of uh, very similar to uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where we find out Indy was named after the dog, I believe. He took on that name, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His real name is Henry Jr. Now, uh, I don't know if we passed it yet, but Chewbacca is only referred to as Chewbacca once in this film. Every other time he's Chewie. Yeah, Obi-Wan says his name. 
Okay. Chewbacca here is first mate on a ship that might suit us. And it would make sense that he would use his full name. Here we have this very infamous scene we're watching now with Greedo and Han Solo. Who shoots first? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a matter of very heated debate, actually. Now, who do you believe shot first, Paul? Um, well, I'll go with the original uh, Han shooting first. I don't even know if Greedo ever gets a shot off. But that was fixed, and that was a, a very, uh, very controversial change to this movie. That I, I guess Lucas didn't like the idea of Han taking somebody's life like this. He would rather have him defend, and that's the only way that he could justify him taking a life. But it doesn't even look that great. I think he actually digitally moves Han to the side so that the, the, the blaster shot misses him. Yeah, we'd have to pause it and go frame by frame. Yeah, and it looks really bad if you pause it and go frame by frame. I've done that before. But, uh, I mean, Greedo is a really bad shot. He's sitting, like, four feet away <laughs> from him, and he hits, like, the wall a foot to the right of his head. Yeah, he really shouldn't have messed with a lot of these scenes. Some things, that, like you said, about Mo Mos Eisley and making that town look like the port that it is where there'd be tons of activity going on that I can kind of understand and that's something special you'd want to add for the re-release you know on the big screen but uh, to go in and, and manipulate these very little plot points you know with uh, bigger consequences probably than intended it's pretty much a mistake that other character that was uh, talking with Darth Vader and General Tarkin is uh, or Grand Moff Tarkin is General Tag and he oversees defense operations of the Death Star. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be seeing now a, a scene coming up where I guess it was lost footage or deleted footage of Han Solo and uh, Jabba the Hutt. Because Jabba the Hutt we aren't supposed to see uh, until we return to Tatooine and Return of the Jedi. Yeah, do you have a bonus DVD with yes. this collection? Yes, I do. This is the, I bought the uh, the 2004 box set. Okay, I believe it might be on that bonus DVD that you can see what this scene originally looked like. Yeah. Where Jabba the Hutt was played by a portly individual. Yes. Just a man. And, um, you know, they, they took that. That wasn't in the, the theatrical release, but they brought that back. They digitally put... The slug-like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> a little bit younger. He can move around on his own at this time. And uh, they put him over that individual. Yeah. And we see Boba Fett here as well in the background. There's one part, though, because this was just kind of like test footage, wasn't it? It wasn't really meant to be. Or it wasn't finished, anyway. And so there's one point where Han walks behind the character. And I remember seeing on, like... Uh, the news or like 60 minutes or one of these shows. I think we're watching it right now. It, they didn't really know what to do uh, to fix that. And Lucas came up with the idea that Han would kind of walk on his tail. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we actually see the, they kind of like cut and pasted Harrison Ford and raised him up yeah. and then dropped him down with a little bit of blur effect. Yeah. It doesn't look that great. No. And you see Jabba make a face like, Oh, yeah. you know, like his eyes bulge out a little bit. It's so silly, and it's like, this is a very dangerous situation. I mean, these are goofy characters, but 
he could be killed at any moment and he's going to just walk on him and everyone's going to let that happen. Yeah. A little uh, far-fetched, even for <laughs> the scene we're seeing here. And there's Boba Fett. Yeah, kind of nice to see that character a little early. I don't know if the same actor is playing him here, but... Uh... Uh, probably not. Jeremy Bullock, I believe, was the original actor for Boba Fett. Okay. And here we see an Imperial informant letting... Uh, Letting the stormtroopers know what docking bay to go to. We see some cubes here that they just walked by on the floor. They're kind of like space crates or something. Mm -hmm. Very similar to the cubes from the game Portal. Mm. I remember reading that, and sure enough, as I see it, yeah. I wonder if uh, it was modeled on a prop from Star Wars. Could be coincidence, though. Now, Chewie just hit, hit his head on something. Yes. There are dice that are hanging in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. And I believe that was added as a nod to uh, American Graffiti. Okay. But it was actually mistakenly done because Harrison Ford did not have the car with dice. I believe it was Ron Howard. Mm. So <laughs> a nod to the movie, but not necessarily to his role. Now, if you watch this space battle take place, you'll see the same explosion happen three times <laughs> from yes. three different angles, basically. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Like, they had all these different cameras watching the same explosion take place and the same stormtrooper storm fall down and uh, just showed it three times in a row. We get a little uh, CGI of uh, the Millennium Falcon departing. Yeah, that kind of stuff I, I like the addition of. That looked good. Living things don't necessarily look that great, especially almost 20 years ago. But uh, ships and stuff fool the eye a lot better. And uh, we get some cool spaceship action. Now, according to the commentary for the Blu-ray set, much of the Millennium Falcon is made up of just junk from airplanes and, and cars. And uh, they just kind of went dumpster diving and went to junkyards and put a lot of this stuff together. Not the way they did it for the newest movie. They built a whole model. Yeah, yeah. Just pretty amazing. The a lot of these models, while they're you know models, are actually very very big. Mm -hmm. Lucas still has them on his Skywalker Ranch, and there were there were two basic designs that they had in mind, and uh, they went with this one. Of course, the other one was the, that that uh, that uh, blockade runner that we saw, of course, at the beginning, like we talked about. The, uh, the sounds of the engines were recorded at an air show in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And uh, as a gesture of thanks, Lucas donated a model of the Millennium Falcon to their air museum. Hmm. And uh, Harrison Ford actually served as the chairman of the Young Eagles program at that museum. Wow. Just kind of coincidentally. Now we see scenes here of Leia and uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. And uh, while they seemed, of course, adversarial, uh, in real life, she was very charmed by him. She, she found him to, to be just a, an amazing actor to work with. And uh, even reportedly, his acting style rubbed off on her. He was very, uh, you know, um, authoritative and strong of a character. And in response, she also came off very uh, regal in her acting. It worked very, very well. Now, was this the first big acting job that she landed, Carrie Fisher? I believe so. I think she did some work in plays and musicals. 
Her mother was, uh, of course, Debbie Reynolds, who also had a similar background. Mm-hmm. Just uh, speaking about Debbie Reynolds, I think in my notes here I have something that I found interesting. If I can find it. Yeah, there, there was a limited budget, and uh, they all had to fly coach. And uh, Debbie Reynolds heard about this, and she actually called George Lucas and, and complained about it. And uh, Fisher was in the room when Lucas got the phone call, and uh, she wanted to talk to her mother, so Lucas handed her the phone. And she was like, Mother, I want to fly coach, and uh, said, uh, will you? And then uh, there was a, an expletive, I, I won't repeat. But uh, yeah, very, uh, very upset, and kind of just... Uh, told her mother this is this is what we have to do you know this is i want to fly coach no special treatment certainly the budget would not allow for first class and here we see the true power of the death star as it destroys the planet alderaan yes and that little i don't know how to explain that ring that comes out of the explosion that was added for the special edition Oh, it was? Okay. As well as for the destruction of both Death Stars, I believe. Huh. That piece of equipment we saw that was used to fire the Death Star's weapon is actually a Grass Valley Group 1600 7K television production switcher. Okay. So if you want to build your own, <laughs> you got to go out and find that. Alderaan was originally known as Organa Major. That's what Lucas uh, wanted to call it. And uh, even though they changed it to Alderaan, Organa was kind of saved and became uh, Leia's adoptive family name. Now we see this uh, kind of, I don't know, I used to always think of it as just space chess. Uh, what is this called, Paul, this, this game? You've said it before on the show. Uh, yeah, I'm looking for my card that talks about it. It's, it's kind of a, I always thought this was so neat. These holographic, 3D, almost like stop motion Harryhausen type characters, you know, fighting each other. I don't really know how much strategy is involved in playing this game, uh, but it always looked so cool to me. I even made a little cardboard table for my action figures when I was younger so that they could sit down and play this game. <laughs> we also see something very similar in the Star Wars Holiday Special, but of course, instead of these little fighting monsters, we, we get a... Uh, an acrobatic troupe that leads us into a very annoying musical number that uh, just goes on and on and on. Here we see Luke doing some uh, Jedi training here with the that floating droid, or that you know little device, I guess. I, I don't think it's a, necessarily its own droid. And later on, and I believe it was Revenge of the Sith, the third prequel, we see uh, young, uh, young children, younglings, training in a very similar way of course as was pointed out by red letter media that makes no sense this was kind of an improvised training that was done on the ship uh it really would make no sense that years earlier these uh young characters would also have a similar training be quite the coincidence that han would have a complete jedi training kit on his uh, <laughs> millennium falcon ship again just trying to tie everything up neatly and going way too far with that 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 game they're playing is uh dejeric uh d-e-j-a-r-i-k okay and uh 
I could tell you all the characters' names on it. But I really, don't. those characters have names too. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's actual character names or just the name of like the game piece. You but know? still, the fact that somebody went in there and yeah. named it's it, so comprehensive. Uh, according to Star Wars canon, which we now know is wiped out, but uh, rebranded as Legends. But according to one story, let's say, the Emperor is a Grand Master at Dejeric. Pretty, pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, uh, there's a targeting grid that's used for the Millennium Falcon's cannon. I don't think we see it yet. And it's based on a paperweight that George Lucas saw on Arthur C. Clarke's desk. Hmm. So he drew inspiration from uh, many different things. Who knows the stuff we don't even know about? Well, I guess Lucas would be the answer to that question. <laughs> Just a great set here, too. And it's funny, at the end, of, the end of Revenge of the Sith, we start to see a lot of the Republic ships and bases start to slowly change to this motif. Mm -hmm. We see the Millennium Falcon in hyperspace, and I believe that was... The, the camera was put through some sort of, like, crinkled aluminum foil tube, and that's kind of, like, where we get that effect. Okay. Now they come out of hyperspace, and uh, uh, there's no Alderaan. You would have to imagine the debris field would be <laughs> unapproachable, really. I mean, all the little pieces of everything that would be flying through the through the air, yeah. through the space, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, planet's pretty big. The, uh, the shutdown noise of the Millennium Falcon is from a, uh, an external air conditioning unit that was, like, on its way out. So it's, like, really struggling. Ben Burt took that from there as well. A lot of air conditioning used for these, uh, these noises. Now, common TIE fighters are not equipped with a, uh, an engine that allows them to travel at light speed. So, seeing this one TIE fighter in the middle of nowhere supposedly uh, had to be questionable and obviously it wasn't in the middle of nowhere it was just uh, flying around the Death Star but uh, Darth Vader's TIE fighter that we see later in this movie he did have light speed uh, added to that and oh, it's really? a good thing he did too yes yes he would would have needed it this is where we get the uh, that's no moon and they, they're getting pulled in by a uh, tractor beam. Mm -hmm. It's really rough, too. <laughs> Shaking the set. Uh, it looks a little more realistic, though, than I when I think of the old Star Treks. Yes. And there'd be an explosion and everyone just jumps across <laughs> the, the set. Now, there's a, on Amazon, I found a great, like, sun shield for when you park your car. And it's these characters in the Millennium Falcon cockpit. It's almost like a, a picture of a frame. And uh, it's actually pretty cheap. Didn't you know I have that, Scott? Do you really? Yeah. Oh my goodness, no, I did not know that. It was an anniversary gift this year. Wow. What a cheapo gift. Oh, what? <laughs> no, never mind. Sorry. I, I requested it. It wasn't my <laughs> only thing I got. <laughs> no, no. Previously, we had something from the dollar store that was falling apart. <laughs> but I wondered, like, I, wanna, I want the... 
windshield of my car to be the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. And sure enough, I hopped on Amazon and found it. <laughs> now, they refer here to the uh, Millennium Falcon as a freighter. Is that what its class of ship is? I will tell you in just a second what the Millennium Falcon actually is. Cause I guess that's what it would be, because that's what he uses to smuggle. But as we know, he won it from Lando Calrissian, or it kind of changed hands back and forth a little bit. It is a modified YT-1300 freighter. Okay. Owned by Lando and won by Han in a Sabic game, 26.7 meters long. Now, you've played Sabic before, right? Um, Isn't it in one of the video games? No, I played Pazak. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, that's Pazak is kind of like a blackjack, version of blackjack. Okay. Like, get to a certain number. Um, Sabic is uh, mentioned at great length in the Han Solo trilogy. It actually goes into detail about the different cards in the game and how it's played. And I'm really surprised that they haven't tried to create a game you know, a deck of cards and actually sell them. Because I think a lot of fans would like to play Sabic for real. Oh, yeah. Not me, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people. The hard part about doing it is the fact that um, the cards were digital and they would randomly, at different increments of time, change change value. Now here's a scene where, uh, not to interrupt you, but uh, Alec Guinness has a little bit of a hard time getting out of that compartment, and that's not acting. This is actually his uh, struggle, mm -hmm. and uh, Lucas left that in. You know what? It is an authentic moment. It kind of makes Alec Guinness look a little silly, but again, this is a man in, what, his early 70s, late 60s? So yeah, he's going to have a hard time. Yeah. In fact, I think we've talked about it before. Uh, there's more things that look like portal cubes, by the way, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, but Han Solo, or... The, the character of Han Solo, I guess we don't know his age, but Harrison Ford now in episode seven is older than Alec Guinness is in this movie. Hard to believe. Very hard to believe. Now, most of the stormtroopers, they, they appear left-handed, and it's because of how they constructed the weapons. Uh, they It's based on a real weapon where the magazine's on the left side, and it caused the... Uh, the weapon to hit them in the chest and so they had to switch the grip of the weapon and that's why you get that kind of left-handed appearance now this is luke that we just saw coming out of the millennium falcon and this is han of course yes both uh in stormtrooper outfits tk421 was the trooper that luke took the armor of tk422 is the one that Han took the uh, uniform of. Wow. Those weapons that they're holding, they were the Sterling L2A3 9mm submachine gun developed in the late 1940s in the UK and adopted by the British and Canadian militaries in the 1950s. Uh, it says that the curved left entry side mounted magazine was removed and uh, that was as much as it was actually modified for the film. We see the, the Sand Trooper weapon. It, it was also uh, a, a, a real weapon. The MG-34 machine gun from Germany. So not uh, not too many changes on, on those props. And they, they do look like, you know, genuine weapons. These aren't little space ray guns that you probably would have seen in Lost in Space and, you know, uh, different television shows like that. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I, I remember hearing something about this scene where they both look down, but I forget what it was. Did you come across anything? No, I didn't. They both look down as the door opens, and I forget why that was. Did they have to pause and hold, possibly? That's possibly what it was for that effect yeah. to take place. It was similar to when uh, a lightsaber is ignited because uh, they have to hold, and then they're given a different hilt, I believe, with mm-hmm. a stick, and that was kind of the guide for putting that overlay of the lightsaber effect on it, you know? So <laughs> that's why igniting and, uh, you know, retracting, I guess, the lightsaber was very difficult for this uh, production. A lot of it's done off-camera. So we see uh, R2-D2 here. He's now, uh, I guess you could call it hacking. It's before hacking was actually a thing. And Leia is held where? Uh, Detention block. AA-23. It's not 1138? Uh, no, that comes in later. Uh, you'll hear that later when they actually enter the prisoner area. Oh, okay. Um, Luke will say prisoner transfer from cell block 1138. And that, of course, is a reference to Lucas's first film, THX 1138, starring Robert Duvall. Have you ever seen it? I have not. It was on Bravo one time, mm-hmm. like really early in the morning. And uh, yeah, pretty boring. Um, did you... I recently saw on the internet that there was a um, a short movie that was released with Empire Strikes Back. It was like a medieval setting with knights and stuff. And uh, I guess it was played before the Empire Strikes Back, like kind of a double feature type thing. Oh, really? It was only 15, 20 minutes long. They're actually going to make that into a full-length movie now. But I I watched it on YouTube, and it wasn't that great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's how I feel about most old-time films anymore with with the cheap effects and stuff, you know. Another thing, too, is, like, uh, the pacing of a lot of these old films. Mm -hmm. It's so slow. One thing is, one thing about Star Wars is it doesn't feel like an older movie. No, it doesn't. Here we see the mouse droid getting scared by Chewbacca's <laughs> growl. Sean and I had talked about uh, about that in a previous episode. Uh, he was listening to a, another great podcast called uh, The Star Wars Minute, uh, where they these guys actually break down Star Wars minute by minute. One episode wow. is one minute. Wow. And they kind of talked about what the purpose of the mouse droid actually is. Yeah, it's the MSE-6 mouse droid. It delivers orders and sensitive documents. Okay, so there we go. The definitive answer. <laughs> and I believe this... I want to say this was changed, this scene here, for the special edition. Originally, it just looked like you were in an enclosed area. But when they first came into the area, you saw a different... Like a backed-up view of it. And there was like an open pit next to them. Yeah, yeah. And it just made it look grander. I believe that was new to the special edition, but I'm not sure. I think it is. Yeah, I think you're right. And here we see Obi-Wan sneaking around to the Death Star. (laughs) I remember the first time watching this, like, how is he going to do that? He stands out like a sore thumb dressed like that. 
Yeah, so he's not that quick. That uh, that scene where Chewbacca does, you know, frighten that mouse droid, mm-hmm. that was thought up on set. That was not uh, anything scripted. It's nice when things like that happen. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, um, Harrison Ford didn't learn his lines for the intercom conversation in the cell block that we're about to see. Uh-huh. And he, he did that so it would sound spontaneous. He didn't want to have something pre-thought in his head. I'm surprised George didn't yell, cut, and make him learn it. <laughs> yeah, you, you leave ad-libbing to the professionals, you know. George fortunately did in that case. I remember watching this scene for the first time with surround sound or some semblance of surround sound, and uh-huh. it was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, now we're, we're getting the, the stormtroopers fighting, uh, uh, well, what, what are those guys? I guess they're cell block guards. Yeah, there's there's stormtroopers. Well, there's Han and Luke as stormtroopers. As stormtroopers, yeah. And then there's the Imperial Army or Navy that is guarding the prisoners. Here we. Uh, okay, so two one eight seven is where she's actually being held, right? The uh, prisoner section here that um, it, it was overseen by Lieutenant Shan Childson. He was the one that spoke to them when they first came out of the elevator. Childson. Yep. He was uh, demoted after a superior blamed him for a clerical error. (laughs) He's also considered a bully by fellow officers. Wow. (laughs) Now you hear that blaster being cocked there. It's like a click sound. And it's a recording of a parking meter handle being turned. Wow. And here we have um, the first meeting of brother and sister. And the very famous line, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? Yeah. Which made many people question, are stormtroopers clones? Are they all a certain height? And is that why she said that? Yes, because as we'll find out in the prequels, they're all clones of the bounty hunter Jango Fett. Uh-huh. <laughs> as is Boba Fett. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. But they are... I believe it's been revised anyway or clarified that they are recruits now by this point. Yes. And that's why later on we'll see one of these stormtroopers famously or infamously bump his head. Mm-hmm. You know, that wouldn't happen if they were all the same height. But we'll talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Cushing was so great. I'm glad that he ended up being Grand Moff Tarkin and not a hero because he, he makes such a great villain. That mm-hmm. face that he makes. Now, he actually completed his role in days. It only He only filmed at this time, May 8th through 12th was his <coughs> shooting schedule. And uh, it lasted from March to June 1976, the, the entire shooting. And, and uh, it was released um, one year later. He, I'm sorry, go ahead. The first stormtrooper that falls there was actually shot by one of his comrades. Oh, really? Yeah. I have a card called Friendly Fire, and it's a picture of that. Wow. <laughs> That's funny. Never noticed that in all the times I've watched this. Just another thing about Peter Cushing. He said, uh, I've often wondered what a Grand Moff was. I, it sounds like something that flew out of a cupboard. Because <laughs> now nowadays, there's so many 
crazy sci-fi names and all this stuff, and especially even as we go forward with more of these Star Wars movies. But at the time, you get these stately British actors, very accomplished in the theater, and they're given all these names like, you know, Grand Moff is your title, and your name is Tarkin, and... One thing I appreciate about what Lucas didn't do in this movie is fill our heads with a lot of names of characters, like crazy names of characters, alien races, etc. Um, I remember seeing, uh, oh, what was that movie? Uh, John Carter. Oh, yeah, John I watched Carter that. And, and I'm watching this, and I'm trying to keep track of who's, th- you know, these weird names and who's who, and it just made my head hurt. And like you said, I mean, we didn't even hear the name of the planet Tatooine, you know, and keeping it simple like that is really good. Yeah. Yeah, John Carter, Disney's failed attempt at a a sci-fi epic. And uh, you think after that, they were just like, all right, let's just buy Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the biggest flops ever. I I don't have the figures in front of me, but it did uh, not so great. And here we have the great scene now in the trash compactor. Yes. Frightened me quite a bit when I was younger. This is another scene, too. Excellent in surround sound. Hearing that blaster bolt ricochet all around the room. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really fun. That's cool. You know, because the first several times I'd seen this movie, it was just with mono speakers, whatever was on my television. So the first time I actually hooked them up to a stereo... It was a whole new experience. Yes. We uh, we used to have surround sound on one of our TVs years ago. And uh, another, one thing I recommend about the prequels is uh, Attack of the Clones, those seismic charges. Mm-hmm. That was uh, very excellent if you have a surround sound system. That's actually what I would test my surround sound out with every time I hooked it up. Was yeah. that scene. It's so great, even though there's no sound in space. But that's okay. <laughs> Now, the uh, creature that is living in the trash compactor that will soon attack Luke here is a Dianoga. It's a garbage squid from (laughs) Vodran Jungles. Uh, Changes color to match its last meal. When unfed, turns transparent. Eats almost anything. Flexible eye stalk. Seven tentacles up to six meters long. Now, you wonder what it's actually doing here yeah is it eating metal i don't know yeah i mean i guess all garbage is kind of thrown in there anyway does it have uh, an escape hatch it, it has to right how did it get there in the first place yeah is it kind of like just something you throw in there to maintain the the garbage possibly you know something organic i guess to uh mm-hmm. you know help clean it like kind of like creatures that like those little algae eater things you'd throw in your fish tank mm-hmm. to help clean it It must have a way out, though, because when they hear the noise that the walls are going to start contracting, it does flee and let Luke go. That's funny. So it's smart enough to know that. Doesn't seem like that intelligent of a creature. But I remember seeing this scene for the first time. Very, very frightening as as a young child. Mm -hmm. Like, back when I I didn't realize, of course, they're going to make it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it it always kind of ruins it when you have a prequel and you know that character lives on to be in the original movies. 
kind of takes you out of the element a little bit. <laughs> like, oh, I hope Obi-Wan makes it through this battle or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, you're talking about the prequels, definitely. Mm-hmm. But when I saw this, there was no, there was no Phantom Menace by then. Right. Now, did we, uh, did we already see the stormtroopers come into the room that the droids were in? Not yet. Not yet. That'll, uh, that'll come now where Luke finally calls up to 3PO. Okay. So here they're going to come in. And you'll see a stormtrooper in the back hit his head on the door. <laughs> yes. Now this for years was uh, an infamous movie mistake. When you looked up online movie mistakes, that was always one of the top 10 movie mistakes of all time and it's just kind of lived on in Star Wars lore. And uh, Lucas for this special edition, he he changed it, right? Uh yeah, I didn't notice it there. But uh he added a clank sound. Yeah. But um in episode 2, um he explained why that happened. Uh, he made Jango Fett hit his head on his ship after fighting Obi-Wan on, um, what planet was that where the clones were made? Kamino, I believe. Yeah. Um, he hits his head as he's going up the, the ramp. And so thus, all, uh, all clones came from Jango Fett and they have the tendency of hitting their head on things. Which, of course, we, as we talked about just moments ago, it was clarified, okay, they were clones early on, now they're, recru- now they're recruits. George Lucas goes back and goes, well, let me give a little clue of them being all clones. Yeah. Well, now you reignite that discussion of, well, how are they all different heights and, and everything? Mm-hmm. Just leave your work alone, George, <laughs> please. Now... We're watching, of course, my DVD collection, which is the the original 2004 box set. I believe it was the first time they were released on DVD. But you, Paul, actually owned a very special DVD set, didn't you? I did. Um, I think it was in 2007 I purchased uh, the original trilogy on DVD, two discs of each movie. One was the original theatrical release, and the other was the special edition. And that was the first and only time so far that the original theatrical release was made available on DVD, on disc, any disc. It hasn't been out on Blu-ray yet. And uh, Not I, even VHS, right? Um, Maybe Laserdisc, but that's about it? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But uh, I, I purchased the trilogy for $20, $22 perhaps. And I sold it on eBay last year for 120 I believe, <laughs> because it's not available. Now, I believe uh, our friend just said, Steve just said the other day that he heard that they are going to release it. Disney will release the original theatrical version on Blu-ray oh, soon. Oh, nice. So. Good. Yes, finally. I'm glad I waited because I, I don't own, we're not watching the Blu-ray version. Uh, which, by the way, this doesn't look bad for TVD. No. This is, I mean, but I, I will be getting the Blu-ray version, but I'm glad they're going to do that. I'm glad Disney's doing that. And I, I thought you were very foolish, even though you were cashing in, which I understand. <laughs> it's like, but still, you had the originals. Yeah, but for me, I mean, I I do crave some of the additions. I don't agree with all of them. But some of them, I really like what they add to the movie. And if I had the choice, original or special edition, I would choose special edition. Now, 
Obi-Wan Kenobi just, uh, all right, here we see, okay, yeah, see right here where, uh, Chewbacca growled to, uh, Han Solo after we got Kenobi's action there. Yeah. It, it said that Chewbacca barks something to Luke, which Han says, boy, you said it, Chewie. And uh, backstage footage, I guess, that was released reveals that what Chewie said is the old man's gone mad. <laughs> wow. And of course, as we know, Han Solo is the only one that can understand him of these people here. Now, in that scene there, we could see the um, trash compactor in the background and the door open to it. Yeah. I don't remember that actually being in the original theatrical release. I almost want to say that was a special edition addition oh really okay. but i'm not sure i can't say 100 percent because i haven't watched the original in a long time now here as we see obi-wan kenobi thousands upon thousands of feet or meters you know off the ground uh he's really only a couple feet in real life look stormtroopers of different height yes yes <laughs> very clearly and just having a conversation amongst each other as they do their work you know <laughs> now there's going to be another scene coming up that was added t for the uh, special edition. I'll let you know when we see that. Well, do I have uh, a moment to share another fact here, or do you want to wait for that scene you're talking about? Uh, you can go ahead, yeah. Well, I just wanted to say that in an earlier version of this script, the Millennium Falcon doesn't land on the Death Star, as we've just watched, but actually it goes to a cloud city that floats above the planet Alderaan. I'm sorry, you want to go ahead? Yeah. As Han goes around this corner <laughs> I here, <love> this. <laughs> hundreds of stormtroopers. Originally, it was just those ones he was chasing. Yeah. I, I don't know if they got to a dead end and turned around to fight, but in the special edition, they added like a whole legion of stormtroopers yeah. in that room. You know what? That I can understand. That makes for a funnier comedic moment. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's okay. And another thing I want to say is that this uh, swinging across by Luke and Leia that we'll see in a few minutes here, mm -hmm. that was uh, all them. No no stunt doubles or wow. stunt actors involved. They they did this all themselves. Of course, they probably weren't that high off the ground. Mm -hmm. Probably were mats and all <laughs> kinds of safety professionals. But still, you know. But as I was saying, this whole thing is happening on the Death Star right now. In an early version, they were going to a cloud city above Alderaan. Okay. That's the idea. And uh, the rescue of Leia and Obi-Wan's duel with Darth Vader, it takes place all at this cloud city. Mm. And uh, there was a, a cut in the budget, and so George Lucas was forced to bring in the Death Star early. It wasn't meant to be at this point. I believe that stormtrooper that fell down there after being shot had that Wilhelm scream. Oh, yeah, the Wilhelm scream, yeah. which uh, appears uh, in all of Lucas's films and many, many other films. I think the Indiana Jones films. Uh, we saw it in the Clone Wars cartoons, as we discussed at length in a previous episode. This is also a scene that's excellent to watch in surround sound. Um, the first time I heard it hooked up to a stereo, I never knew that there was actually an echo when they spoke. Oh, you just If you just listen on the TV, you just hear everything said once, but when you have it hooked up to a stereo or surround sound, it's like, I think we took a wrong turn, wrong turn. It was, <laughs> it, it was really cool. Wow. Yeah, great sound engineering. I mean, this was, this is Star Wars at its best. Some people say Mille um, Millennium Falcon, as I'm looking at the Millennium Falcon. Some people say uh, The Empire Strikes Back is better. 
one and two, one A, one B. They're both very, very good movies. I could, if you had a list and you ranked one above the other, it wouldn't matter to me. Jedi is a little lower, still way up there, but uh, definitely this is a great filmmaking all around. When I was younger, I put Jedi one just because of all the action and everything going on. I enjoyed the the setting of the Force Moon of Endor. Now as I'm older, I appreciate Empire Strikes Back a lot more. The dark tones, what you know, yeah. the the personal struggles and whatnot. And I I definitely put that one top now, but this one's great as well. Here we have the the famous duel between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader, as alluded to in uh, one of the prequels where Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan says, uh, why do I have the feeling you're going to be the death of me or something like to that effect? I know that when, when I was in the theater for that line, got a, uh, an audible groan from the audience. <laughs> oh, man. And of course, this was the weakest of all the lightsaber fights in Star Wars movies. I mean... It's, well, first of all, it's the first one. Yeah. So no one knew it was going to be the weakest. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense in retrospect. You know, this is a, an older man fighting a, a another older incapacitated man. You know, uh, we think of Darth Vader's accoutrement as kind of like making him, you know... Um, Stronger and more fearful looking, at least. But this is really like a respirator. Uh, this is a, a, a man that's handicapped. He does still have a lot of skill with a lightsaber, though. He does. In, in some of the, uh, the comics and different expanded universe pieces, you can see that he can really handle himself. Yeah, and I apologize for using the word accoutrement. We see here that um, Vader's lightsaber is a little more pink than red. Mm -hmm. I think uh, in subsequent movies, the Siths are a little more reddish, their lightsabers. Yeah, I think they, you know, just had better equipment and better computers to make the blades look nicer. Yeah. In fact, even the blade looks a little flat when they swipe it. Still, not like anything anybody had ever seen before. And here Obi-Wan sacrifices himself and disappears. Yeah, with a, a, a sly smirk to Luke. Uh, audiences at this time, you know, were shocked. They didn't know what was going to happen, what was going on. But uh, here we see Darth Vader stepping on Obi-Wan's robes and seeing him disappear. Of course, does Anakin know that uh, when Jedis die, they disappear in some cases? As we talked about last week with Phantom Menace, Qui-Gon didn't disappear for some reason. Yeah. I don't know if he'd ever seen that. He seemed a little confused stepping yeah. on the robe. But then we hear Obi-Wan's voice yelling to Luke, Run, Luke, run. So right away we're like, well, what happened to Obi-Wan? Yeah, yeah. Or at least, at the very least, well, I guess he's okay in some capacity. <laughs> His spirit endures. Yes. In fact, uh, the uh, action figures, if you were part of the uh, Star Wars fan club or toy fan club, whatever it was at the time, uh, you could get the opportunity to purchase. I don't think you even got it for joining, but the, the Spirit of Obi-Wan action figure. I have that. Do you? Yeah. He's like translucent blue, yeah, right? Yeah, and it doesn't move. There are no like hinges for the arms or anything. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure it's just like 
you know, solid. Now, where'd you get that? I don't recall. I don't remember. Because I, I saw it recently on eBay. I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it in a store. I believe it was shipped to me. Yeah. Yeah, we should talk, probably talk a little bit about the uh, the toys that came out for this movie. Uh, early on, Lucas wanted a simple set of figures that came out. In fact, um, they were a little behind deadline. So Kenner came out with the case. You could buy the empty case. Mm-hmm. And then the figures would finally be sent to you. Uh, that's uh, very valuable. If you have any of these figures, you know, in, uh, in mint condition or in the packages, they're uh, quite valuable. I have some of the newer Kenner uh, action figures still in packages. But. Yeah, well, when we were in middle school, 1997, and this, these films were re-released, they had this whole line. That, was it Kenner or Hasbro? I think it was Hasbro, right? Uh, I think Kenner had the original, and then Hasbro came out with the ones that we're familiar with. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I collected a whole bunch. I got I bought all the main characters. Mm-hmm. I still have them in my closet somewhere. But uh, you and our friend Steve and I know, you guys went all out. You guys had quite the collection. I had quite a few. I had Luke in all his uh, different, yes. <laughs> different wardrobes over the movies. Here we see Han and Luke fighting with the Millennium Falcon's quad laser cannons. Those are mounted in the middle of the ship, both on the top and the bottom of it. It's, it's weird to think of of that being where they are because you look at the way they're sitting, you know. Yeah. But they're actually like looking out the top and bottom of the ship. And uh the, these these scenes that we are watching right now where they're targeting these tie fighters as they're flying around at, at these gun stations and it's very heavily influenced by uh old uh, dogfight movies, you know, like uh that Lucas was uh yeah, a fan of being younger. These old war movies. I don't mean literally. You know, dog dog fighting. <laughs> and some some of the scenes in this are added for the special edition, but I believe most of them were from the original version. If you notice, um, we'll see the Tie Fighters again a little later, but uh, to m- increase the speed of the Tie Fighters, or at least the the perception of them being faster than they really are. They actually blurred the backgrounds and moved them mm-hmm. opposite of the TIE Fighter. So they appear to go even faster than they, they really do. They really wanted these these TIE Fighters to be speedy. They're a lot better in outer space than they are in uh, atmosphere, I believe, the TIE Fighters. Okay. And uh, we'll get a, a view of that in uh, Episode 7. We've already... Seen that scene in the trailer where a couple of TIE Fighters are trailing the Millennium Falcon? I am in eager anticipation of one more trailer that's supposed to be released before the movie. Yeah, at the time of this recording, we had the teaser. We had the more lengthy trailer where we see Han Solo and Chewbacca. And there should be a third one fairly soon, right? Yeah, sometime this fall they said there would be a final one coming out. Some people thought it would be when all the toys were released a couple weeks ago, but that was not the case. Yeah, that was uh, called Force Friday. 
Did you uh, do go to any Force Friday events in your area in I Pennsylvania? Did, I did not. I have. Uh, I'm friends with a family. She took her uh, three kids to a Toys R Us at midnight. Oh, really? And they bought some stuff. I heard it was uh, pandemonium <laughs> at quite uh, the many locations. I went with uh, Sean, and uh, we we went later on. You know, he he said I'll I'll pick up a couple of things for the kids if there's anything left. But we just kind of went to see what they actually put out. We didn't get anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we got there, most of the figures were gone, empty shelves. And the countdown clock, they have a countdown clock at all the at the uh, Toys R Us stores mm-hmm. that show like when the movie comes out. The countdown clock said nine days. <laughs> so <laughs> that took some abuse, I guess, during Force Friday because they're like, that's not happening. Now we see the uh, Millennium Falcon make its descent upon Yavin, but that's what, Yavin 4? Um, is that correct? Yes, Yavin 4. I believe Yavin is the red planet that they were flying around to get to Yavin 4. Yeah, the gas giant, as we talked about from the uh, Clone Wars cartoon series. That exterior shot was actually from a, a Guatemalan temple. And I believe the architecture that you see in the jungle is known as Masasi. Um, I don't know if that was the the culture or the alien race that built those structures. Yes. And here they plug R2 into the computer so they can uh, have their presentation to all the rebel pilots about how to defeat the Death Star. And the Death Star can move about through space. I'm not sure what its top speed is, but you can see there that it is approaching the planet of Yavin. Um, it had to approach the planet of Alderaan before it destroyed Alderaan. Yeah, and just to uh, be a little more specific, these were filmed at the Mayan temples at Tikal, Guatemala. Now, now that we're in Yavin, we see them going over the plans of the Death Star, they're not quite that accurate. We see that that giant uh, Death Star cannon is kind of in the middle. Yeah. It shows it in the middle, like along the trench, but it's actually on the real thing. It's up higher, the the cannon. I'm surprised Lucas didn't change that. <laughs> it's just them watching a flat screen. you think that would be fairly easy to change. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe you could tell me, Paul, you know about this stuff a little more than I do, but uh, Luke meets his old friend Biggs Darklighter here on Yavin. Yes. And it was filmed in 1977, but it didn't make the cut, and they added it in here for the special edition. Is mm-hmm. that true? Yes. Yep, that'll be after um, after this presentation here. The pilot that is sitting to the right of Luke is Wedge Antilles, and... He's popular through the rest of the original trilogy. Played by Dennis Lawson, uncle of Ewan McGregor. Interesting. Yeah. Funny that here's the connection there. Uh, He was approached or at least asked about uh, would he be interested in any involvement in episode seven? And uh, nope. Nope, not at all. Doesn't doesn't care. (laughs) That's a shame. Because in the expanded universe, in the Legends books, uh, he goes on to play a very big role um in the new republic he is the leader of rogue squadron and uh you know he's a very well-known character through the star wars universe yeah 
well, they could they could just get an older actor, you know. But you know, if I was a guy like that, I could understand. Like he's not super rich off this off these movies, you know, and uh, probably some some of these guys love the attention they get from these movies. They'll go to conventions. They'll gladly sign. They're happy that their small contribution many years ago is still making people happy. But not everybody feels that way, you know. Mm-hmm. I can't speak for Mr. Lawson, but. Uh, <laughs> He doesn't seem to want to be attached to these films any longer. You wonder how Alec Guinness felt being this accomplished actor and just being known from here on out as this old Jedi master. Yeah. How many times he was called on the street, hey Ben or yeah. Obi-Wan. Yeah, may the force be with you. <laughs> Great exchange here between Luke and Han. Like I said, really good acting, I think, in this movie. Just very realistic. And it, it helps when people get to talk to each other and not to uh, a tennis ball or something. Yes, right? yes. Now, we heard uh, Han actually say to Luke, may the force be with you, even though he doesn't really feel that way. You know, he doesn't have that belief. Yeah. And uh, we also hear that line, uh, General Dodona. Is that the name? Dodona? Yes. Just said it previously to the rebel pilots. Uh, but Obi-Wan, who you kind of think says, may the force be with you, he does never actually say that line. It's always a close variation. Yes. We'll talk says... more about that quote. I have some more things prepared I want to talk to you about at the end. Okay. okay here's our re- reunion with Biggs. And there's a, there's a history, a long history uh, of these two characters, right? Yes, Biggs Darklighter, I believe is his last name. He is from the uh, planet of Tatooine. Um, He's the pilot of Red 3, and he's a childhood friend of Luke. If you're not watching right now, he's the the guy that we'll see later flying in uh, one of the X-Wings with the mustache. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, just to remind you that this was filmed in the 70s. Got the 70s mustache. But uh, the radio drama, which I recommend if, if you... Uh, have some cash to spend, go out and find them. They're they sometimes on Amazon. They might be on eBay. It's a, a very big CD set. And uh, they are the NPR radio dramas that were produced with all the original sounds and music. And uh, a lot of the actors come back, including Mark Hamill. And uh, it's it's the, the entire story of these movies, but with some extra things, including uh, a back history with Biggs Darklighter and uh, the characters of... Uh, Cammy and his other friends and uh you know it's a, a much longer experience than watching the film according to my card here which was produced before the prequels uh general dodano was actually a star destroyer captain during the old republic okay so a little experience i guess mm-hmm. on these shots of all these uh, x-wings departing in the hangar I believe the the image was copied a couple of times to make it appear as though there was an entire fleet. And here, Luke, the Force will be with you. Yeah, not quite the line we're familiar with. And this was added for the special edition, the scene of the the ships taking off from the planet. Yes. And these aren't just X-Wings, right? There's a a whole host of different ships. Uh, Just X-Wings and Y-Wings for this battle. Uh, A-Wings and B-Wings don't come into play until Return of the Jedi. Oh, okay. Now, this is a scene that we're watching right now that was in the trailer 
for the special edition. It's these uh, X-Wings flying past Yavin towards the Death Star. Very nicely done. Yeah, I like it a lot. Now, I prefer not having any CGI at all, but if, if they're going to add some for a special edition, this doesn't bother me. And here the, um, the X-Wings are known by red. They are Red Squadron. The Y-Wings are the Gold Squadron. Their, their call names are Gold 1, you know, Gold Leader, Gold 3, Gold 5, etc. And Luke is Red 5? Yes. And uh, we see the character of Jack Porkins, <laughs> which um, I have a problem with. You know, he's a portly gentleman. Uh, that's not prosthetics, you know. The actor was a portly gentleman. And imagine Lucas telling this guy, oh, yeah, that was a good audition. Uh, you're gonna name Your name's gonna be Porkins. Now, whether he assigned the name Porkins to a portly actor or cast a portly actor into the role of Porkins, either way, he named a fat guy Porkins. <laughs> and, you know, that, that guy, he, he's, uh, he had since passed away. But for his whole life, he was known as Porkins. Now, whether he embraced that, I do not know. But that's gotta hurt. <laughs> Ouch, George. And here we have this uh, amazing scene now. This is what's referred to as the Battle of Yavin. Mm -hmm. And this is for all of Star Wars chronology. This is kind of like the zero year. This is where everything happened before this time or after this time. Right. This was such a, a major event to the storyline, to this galaxy, this universe. This was probably the largest battle that had ever taken place between the Galactic Empire and the Rebel Alliance up to this point. Yeah. We see um, the, the, the exterior of the Death Star and the trench. Those are all giant models that were made. Yeah, I remember watching how they shot some of this and they'd have like cameras panning across the surface of this model and they'd have little explosives go off at different times, you know? Yeah. Just a monumental technological achievement in film at this time. Uh, the the scene that we had previously seen of them briefing the pilots and now they're involved in these dogfights. Uh, th this was inspired by many of those World War II films as I had talked about earlier. Uh, the films that heavily influenced these scenes are Flying Tigers of 1942, Flying, Nether Flying Leathernecks of 1951, and Battle of Britain of 1969, amongst many others, but those were... Uh, very big ones here. I really think that the extra scenes that were added during this dogfighting for the special edition... Oh, yeah, here we see one right now. Are, yeah. They're they're really nicely put in, you know, blended together, and it all looks seamless to me. Like, you can't tell when one ends and the next begins, kind of. Yeah. Now, X-Wing and Y-Wing, as we know these, you know, quite well... Mm -hmm. These were originally used by industrial light and magic uh, effects guys to distinguish what these ships were. Uh, it's not a term that was meant to be used in the film, but they were incorporated into the sequels. So, of course, at that point they became canon. And uh, the toys were named X-Wing and Y-Wing and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. In fact, just like they called these ships X-Wings and Y-Wings, they called the, uh, the Millennium Falcon the Pork Burger. Wow. But uh, fortunately, that didn't stick. I believe two two uh, pilots can be in the Y fighters, but only one in the X wings. The Y wings are not um, not as maneuverable, 
they're kind of slow and uh, lumber around a little bit, but um, they are they can endure a heavier beating. Their shields are better, and their main purpose is for bombing. Oh, okay. Here we see uh, Darth Vader, the former Anakin Skywalker, is still that skilled pilot. Fortunately, he doesn't give us a line like, I'll try spinning. <laughs> That's a good trick. <laughs> now, do you know what TIE Fighter stands for? TIE is actually an acronym, Paul. Why don't you tell me, Scott? Okay. <laughs> it stands for Twin Ion Engines. The model maker Joe Johnston came up with this acronym to uh, name these these ships that they were working on. But in the the making of the Star making of Star Wars book, he mentions that another possibility could have been Third Intergalactic Empire. But uh, I guess Twin Ion Engines is probably better. A couple of the uh, fighters we see here are Dutch. He's the one with his targeting computer down. Um, that's a nickname. His real name is John Vander. And they then, call him Dutchy when he passes on the left-hand side. <laughs> and then the other one uh, is Pops, not the one that just exploded, is Pops. He's the pilot of Gold 5, real name Davish Crail. <laughs> Let me guess, is he an older gentleman? He is. Yeah, of course. I was surprised Jack Porkins didn't drive the, uh, the pork burger. <laughs> Some of the names needed a little work. But uh, just uh, an amazing scene, an iconic scene. And just like uh, some Beatles music, you don't think of it as, oh, this is 60s music. Star Wars, you don't think of it, oh, that's a 70s movie. Some, no. some works of art endure, and uh, they seem timeless. But, uh, and do you know the names of these characters here? We see uh, a man with, uh, kind of looks, that guy kind of looks how Sean Connery looks now, except <laughs> with a giant mustache. I'm sure they all have names. Let me see if uh, <laughs> I just Rebel Commander. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I have names for any of those. On Yavin 4, there were Commander Vanden Willard and Commander Evram uh, Lajaye. <laughs> L-A-J-A-I-E. Okay. So we might see them in some of those scenes at the uh, command center. The uh, the sound of these TIE fighters here are the uh, uh, the combined sounds of the squeal of a young elephant with the sound of a car driving by on a rain-slicked highway. Wow. Now, uh, Darth Vader's TIE fighter is a little different than the, uh, the other TIE fighters as we see. Yes, it, it has curved wings instead of straight um, it is a TIE Advanced X-1, and it has uh, stronger shields, improved power plant, uh, armored hull, and enhanced weapons. Now we see torpedoes being uh, fired at that port, as we know, will destroy the Death Star. Kind of a big flaw. You think it wouldn't take much to uh, put a little bit of shielding, just weld a, a metal plate over that thing, and you're good to go. And, and the uh, TIE Fighters that fly with Vader, are their call signs are Black 3 and Black 4. This, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this was 
very, very heavily influenced by Akira Kurosawa's film, The Hidden Fortress. And at one point in the movie, I believe it might have been Tarkin, somebody refers to the Death Star itself as a fortress, as a nod to, uh, to that, uh, that great film. In fact, Toshiro Mifune, I believe his, his name, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it, he was actually considered for the role of uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, because Lucas loved uh, that, that film so much. The pilots of the TIE Fighters are DS-612, DS-613, DS-614. Um, the number at the end is goes along with Black 2, Black 3, Black 4. Okay. And uh, I'm guessing DS might be for Death Star, but I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that seems pretty likely. Now, Luke has a line, Blast it, Biggs, where are you? Mm-hmm. In the Death Star battle, it it was uh, Blast It Wedge, Where Are You, in the mono version. And the mono mix is, is less common, but the version of the latter line, it may may seem to make more sense. Wedge is the one who actually did save Luke at that point in the battle. Mm-hmm. In the original draft, Luke made a failed Death Star trench bombing attempt before making that shot that, of course, goes in and destroys the Death Star. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the footage of the first run was eliminated from the final cut of the movie. And one line that referenced the first run remained. It says, they're coming much faster this time. Mm. So that implies there was a first time. But we can just take that to mean the first time they destroyed all the all the ships making that run. You yes, know? yes. So. Now, did we just see Biggs lose his life here? Yes. Yeah. And I misspoke earlier, it's Black 2 and Black 3 that are his wingmen, Darth Vader's wingmen. Okay. Not 3 and 4. The the first uh, shot that was ever completed by ILM was the pod leaving Leia's ship at the beginning. But the first shot actually approved by George Lucas was the, the shot of the laser cannons here in the Death Star Trench. And here we hear Obi-Wan again telling Luke to uh, trust himself, trust the Force, and Luke heeds that advice and shuts off his targeting computer. To everyone's surprise. You know, it's like he, this is, uh, a lot is riding on this one trip, you know? He's uh, the only guy left. Because the Death Star is getting ready to blow up the base, and that would pretty much end the rebellion I never understood that part there. Like, Vader was shooting under Luke's ship, and then all of a sudden he's hitting R2 on the dome oh, yeah, above. Oh, yeah, It's pretty amazing that uh, that droid is not fried completely. <laughs> I mean, it does look like a kill shot there on poor R2. There we see that television switcher, that firing mechanism. Mm-hmm. And this is just all beautifully done, of course. Hard to describe on a podcast, but something I, I'm sure many of us are well familiar with at this point. I have you now. <laughs> and what a great moment there. Where, uh, uh, oh, here's uh, Darth Vader's TIE Fighter now spinning out of control due to the Millennium Falcon's intervention. And that was added late in the film. And George Lucas insisted that this extra piece of the film be in here where it spins out of control other members of the film crew didn't like that they 
they felt that it set up a sequel. And uh, at the time, it says uh, in my research here that sequels were generally generally regarded as uh, inferior cash-in movies. <laughs> but Lucas insisted that Darth Vader show be shown spinning out of control and surviving. And now, like, what percentage of movies that hit the theaters are, like, remakes, sequels, prequels? Yeah. You know, there's very little original stuff anymore, it seems. So, of course, Luke is successful, and uh, Death Star is destroyed. Right here, listen to Luke as he yells. Um, it's been noted that People think he yells Carrie there. He accidentally yeah. calls Carrie Fisher by her name. And if you notice, as we're watching this on the 2004 DVD release with subtitles, uh, they do not subtitle his words back to her. <laughs> she yells Luke, and you just see him yell and hug her. Uh-huh. So I think they kind of said, well, it's clearly not Leia. Let's just not write anything. Nice uh, C-3PO is an organ donor, willing to <laughs> sacrifice anything needed to repair R2. I don't know how many of their parts are interchangeable. But... <laughs> and I have this Luke with the uh, yellow jacket and the metal as an action figure. <laughs> and this is the Masesai throne room that they have this uh, ceremony in. Get to see a little bit more of the strength of the rebellion. They do have, you know, quite a few people behind them, but not nearly the size of the Empire. Yes, and, and some were cardboard cutouts from what I heard, too. That might have been fixed or changed later on. Uh, just some great music we're hearing here. Uh, Steven Spielberg is actually the one that recommended John Williams to compose the score for this movie. Spielberg was pretty on the ball when it came to a lot of things. And his advice to George Lucas. Uh, Williams, I guess, had worked with Spielberg on Jaws. And he won the Academy Award. So, I mean, he definitely had the credentials at that point. And uh, Lucas felt that, from what it's been reported, that the musical score that Williams would provide would give the audience an emotional familiarity. And uh, that's an understatement. I mean, when you think of these movies, you think of that music. It was ranked number one on AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores. Hmm. You, when you think of movie music, it's hard to picture anything other than this. Yeah. You know, of course, Indiana Jones and Jaws and things like that. But this this is number one. I wonder what the medals actually look like. Because for a second there, you could kind of see one up close. And it almost looked like the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> like the... The front of the ship was the top where the bar goes across. I don't know. Now, you'll notice that Chewbacca was not awarded a medal. Yeah. Which is odd. Uh, he did not receive a medal. And MTV, almost uh, 20 years later, so I guess it was like 1997, because that's when the, the uh, special editions came out, right? Yeah. So there was a little bit of uh, Star Wars hysteria in pop culture at the time. So MTV at their movie awards, they gave the character of Chewbacca, a Lifetime Achievement Award. So he got his medal finally, and Carrie Fisher was the one on stage to present it to him. Nice. Back when there was a, a channel called Music Television <laughs> that showed music on television. And now the credits are rolling. Now the credits roll, and uh, so I got some questions for you, Paul, and if you're listening, you can uh, play along with us. Okay, so... The American Film Institute had a, uh, a series of lists they put out for 
100 anniversary. They did a 100 years series, they're called. Mm-hmm. And uh, Star Wars ranks on a lot of these lists. And see if you can guess where they rank. In 1998, they came out with the 100 best movies. According to the American Film Institute, what number does Star Wars rank? Uh, out of 100. Uh, seven? 15. Okay. Number one is Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then they did a 10th anniversary of this list. Okay. 10 years later, where does this movie rank? Mm. I'm going to hope it went up and say seven again. <laughs> 13. Okay. Number one is still Citizen Kane. A couple more. Okay, now they, they also came out with 100 Years, 100 Thrills. Mm-hmm. Most thrilling movies. Where does this land? Seven. 27. Oh, Number one is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. <laughs> Now, they also did a 100 Best Heroes and 100 Best Villains list. I'll, I'll tell you that Han Solo and Obi-Wan appear on the Heroes list. Do you know where? I don't know. I Han Solo and who? Obi-Wan. Okay. Not Luke. On the top 100, you said? Yes. Uh, I would say they're, um, I don't know, maybe 30s. Han Solo was number 14. Okay. Obi-Wan, number 37. Okay, I got 37. Number one was Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. I would have never got that. Uh, Number two, Indiana Jones. Number three, James Bond. Wow. Rightfully so. Mm -hmm. I can understand that. Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker were nominated for this list. Mm -hmm. Uh, A Star Wars villain does appear high up on the villains list. Can you guess where Darth Vader ranks? Um, how about seven? (laughs) You keep going with it. Number three. Wow. Number one is Hannibal Lecter. Number two, Norman Bates from Psycho. Okay, now movie quotes. Help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope, was nominated. May the Force be with you does appear on the list. Where do you think? Mm, Two? Number eight. Okay. Number one was... Well, Sean's kids are probably listening, so I'll just say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a darn. (laughs) How about we're going to need a bigger boat? I'm sure that was up there as well, as it should be. Uh, 100 years of film scores, as I mentioned a few moments ago, it appeared number one. John Williams score, best movie score of all time, according to the American Film Institute. Uh, Most inspiring movies. Where do you think this ranks? Mm, uh, 26. 39. Okay. Not much inspiration, evidently. Uh, number one was It's a Wonderful Life. And this was kind of surprising, but I understand it was ranked in the sci-fi film category. Where do you think it ranked? Hmm. Uh, 18? Number two. <laughs> number two. What do you think was number one, if you had to guess? It's an older one. Uh, how old? <laughs> older than this. Dune? No, no come on. Uh, how about... Oh, man. I was going to say Last Starfighter, but... No. 2001, uh, A Space Odyssey. Okay. I never watched that fully. Now, I got a couple of quotes I got to read you. As we close, we're not done with the credits. The movie is over. George Lucas, talking about this movie, said, It's the flotsam and jetsam from the period when I was 12 years old. All the books and films and comics that I liked when I was a child. The plot is simple, good against evil, and the film is designed to be all the fun things and fantasy things I remember. The word for this movie is fun. This was to us what those movies were to him as a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, Roger Ebert gave it this review in 1977. He says, What makes the Star Wars experience unique, though, is that it happens on such an innocent and often funny level. It's usually violence that draws me so deeply into a movie. Violence ranging from the psychological torment of a Bergman character to the mindless crunch of a shark's jaws. Maybe movies that scare us find the most direct route to our imaginations, but there's hardly any violence at all in Star Wars, and even then it's presented as essentially bloodless swashbuckling. Instead, there's entertainment so direct and simple that all of the complications of the modern movie seem to vaporize. So that was Roger Ebert and his review for the Chicago Sun-Times. Mm-hmm. Now I have one more quote. I won't reveal who said it, but he said, People who alter or destroy works of art and our cultural heritage for profit or as an exercise of power are barbarians. Who do you think said that? George Lucas. It was. It was George Lucas. He was objecting to the colorization of films in front of Congress on March 3rd, 1988. George Lucas did such a great job on this movie and... This is the George Lucas that we love, you know, the one that uh, that had this idea and it was refined, fortunately, because you look at some of the early treatments of this film were pretty crazy. Who knew uh, only 19 years later he would be doing that very same thing and destroying or altering a work of art. This was uh, preserved by the uh, was it the Library of Congress and the Film Institute. It's uh, it's well preserved as a um, a landmark of art, pretty much. And like you said, hard to believe that it was made in the 70s, 1977. Now, do you have any final thoughts, Paul, as we close? Um, that's just one of my favorite movies. Probably, you know, top 10, definitely top 20 of, of my life that I've seen. Definitely one that I enjoy watching over and over again. And uh, it's been a pleasure viewing it with you this evening. Yes, and thank you for joining me. This will pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, your favorite uh, minor Star Wars character, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Now, do you have anything you want to plug? I do not. Okay, same as last week. Uh, I am on Twitter. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I am also on Vine. There, my name is also MC and Friends. And there I do flip page animation, little humorous cartoons. You can uh, follow me there and check out my stuff there. Now, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you do, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps us out. And if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. And we try to be creative with those. We are also on Stitcher. If you use Android devices, I understand not everybody likes Apple. Uh, that may be the way for you to go. And if you know anybody else that uses Android devices, you can recommend that to them as well. There you can stream or download our show on your Samsung or whatever else you got. Well, Paul, once again, thank you very much. It's been nice having you here and uh, doing a couple episodes with you while you're on vacation. Yeah, I look forward to joining you uh, in the near future over the phone. Yes, and we'll be... Uh, talking again and uh, certainly when episode 7 comes out we'll be uh, discussing that at length I'm sure well we have been Paul and Scott and this has been Hitting Play thank you so much for listening until next time may the force be with you <laughs>